welcome to the Women's Theology Speakeasy, a space dedicated to hearing the voices of women over the din. everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Women's Theology Speakeasy. This week I have the enormous privilege of interviewing Tasia Scratton, author of the very important book Christianity and Depression. Today we will be talking about the book, some of the ways in which Christianity has tried to explain depression and the story of Sarah in Tobit. Welcome Tasia, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. It's a delight to be able to talk to people even when we're stuck in different parts of the country. (laughs) So, first of all, your book asks really important questions about the ways in which church has tried to explain depression, including sin and demons. So, why do you think these are inadequate and harmful? Yeah, thank you for that question. So I'll start by saying a bit about um, what a sin view is, and then kind of why I think it's inadequate and harmful, and then go on to, to demons. So what I call the sin interpretation of depression, which is often applied to mental illness more generally, is the idea that depression is the result of individual sin. So You might think there are different ways of connecting mental illness and and sin, but this is specifically that the person who is suffering from mental illness has done something sinful, uh, or is living a sinful lifestyle, or has a lack of faith. So a lack of faith often counts as a sin in these communities, or, you know, isn't praying enough, isn't living a good enough Christian lifestyle. Perhaps it doesn't come as any surprises to learn that it's often associated, the sin in question, alleged sin, is uh, often homosexuality. So, so the person who has depression is depressed because they, they've sinned. The thing that gave rise to this project was that a friend of mine in the northeast of England was told that her depression was the result of sin. And I, I thought, gosh, that can't be a very common view. But as I kind of researched further, um, I discovered it, it is actually uh, surprisingly common. Since this is a women's speakeasy, um, it's interesting to note that there's some evidence to suggest that women are more likely than men to be told by their churches that their mental distress is not a mental illness, but is the result of some kind of sin uh, or sort of moral failure, lack of faith and so on. And in addition to kind of churches telling people these things, perhaps church leaders or people in positions of authority, there are also various self-help books, Christian self-help books that, uh, as the genre suggests, emphasise choice, and they'll be about how to overcome depression or something like that. So happiness is a choice, they might be called or something, and then, and then how to overcome your depression. But because of this emphasis on choice, you nearly always sort of get the, you know, it sounds hopeful, it sounds great. Happiness is a choice, but conversely, uh, depression and other forms of mental illness are also seen as choices in these self-help books. So why do I think that's inadequate and harmful? Well, I should note that proponents of this kind of view, what they call the the Christian view of mental illness, although I think it really isn't, is that they claim that it gives hope because it emphasises the person's agency. So the person has power themselves to overcome mental illness by living better, by praying harder, by having more faith and so on. And then sometimes they contrast that to a medical view 
which they see as not giving hope because the, the person is deprived of agency. They're, they're kind of passive in the face of their experience. But I, I don't think that's very persuasive. I mean, um, a lot of other interpretations also give hope. Medical ones give hope if you think, well, medication might actually be effective, talking therapies might be effective and so on. And there are other kinds of, of religious interpretations and, and therapies that are, are hopeful. But I, I think worse than that, the sin view is very damaging so in particular, it, there's a lot of evidence to show that it, it induces guilt and low self-esteem. So if you're being told that you're sinful, what a surprise that makes you feel guilty and, and bad about yourself. But that's particularly bad in depression because that's already actually a symptom of depression. So one thing that psychiatrists and doctors look for is uh, a, sen- a sense of guilt and lack of self-esteem when they're diagnosing people with depression. So being, being told that you're guilty... Um, and not a good person and so on, can actually increase, can make the symptoms of of depression worse and so make depression itself worse because the symptoms are are what the depression is. And I think, you know, in depression, people often already feel guilty and then they look for things that they could be guilty of. A lot of people with depression talk about feeling this sort of gut feeling of, of guilt, background feeling of guilt, and then trying to think of things that they could have done wrong that would explain this. So the, the sin views really play into that and they, they really worsen that. And, and there's a lot of people who, who talk about having had these views and how that had that kind of effect on them. I think there are other ways in which they're harmful. So they can discourage people from taking medications, from seeking medical and psychological help. Now, there's lots of mixed evidence for the effectiveness of antidepressants. It seems to be quite effective, particularly in the case of severe depression, to take antidepressants. And so the, the, the consequences of discouraging people from taking medication can be life-threatening. And again, you, you, there's evidence of people sort of being persuaded to throw away medicated drugs by people in their church and then um, becoming extremely ill, perhaps, perhaps even taking their lives. So, so, so that is obviously a very harmful effect. These kind of sin views alienate people from church communities that should be a form of support. So you often get people saying, well, I don't talk about my depression to people in the church because they're likely to see it as a sign of sin or demonic possession. So churches could be a a terrific form of support for people who are suffering. And many people who are suffering different things do do talk to people in their churches. But actually, in the case of of mental illness with some church communities, and I should emphasise that not all churches and not all Christians think this by any means. But but where people do, it, it has a kind of alienating effect, a, a stigmatising effect. It also deflects attention away from the social causes of mental illness. So if we're saying, well, the problem is with you, the individual, we're not recognising that the problem might be with the fact that the person experienced trauma early in life or the person has a casualised contract and uh, is perpetually in a, a position of financial instability and isn't, isn't able to put roots down or that the person is a victim of discrimination because of perhaps the, the ethnic group they come from or, or because they're gay or whatever. So we're not, so, so we really overlook kind of forms of social injustice that, that we know are strongly correlated with mental illness and with depression if we, if we look to the individual person as, as the kind of locus of the problem rather than, rather than the wider society. So that's why I think sin views are harmful and inadequate. I think there's probably some other reasons there, but um, that's probably enough to be going on with at the moment. You also asked me about demonic views. And again, these, these are quite common in, in some 
Christian traditions. I mean, to, to some people, this will be complete news. And to people from other traditions, this will be really a very, very familiar thing. So the, the kind of demonic view is that demons cause depression and other forms of mental illness. And a distinction is often made between demonic oppression, which is just kind of being mildly afflicted. So perhaps if you've got mild or moderate depression, that, that might be demonic oppression. And demonic possession, where you're kind of completely controlled by a demon. And then that's likely to be attributed to, to much more severe forms of, of mental illness. And a key thing here seems to be to what extent you still have control over your will. There's so so many different ways in which the language of, of demons and the demonic comes in to debates about mental distress and mental illness. But in the demonic views I look at particularly, and these are not the only kind, demons are thought to be allowed to afflict or enter the person because of that person's sin. So um, people will sometimes talk about sin opening a door to demons or something like that. So in a way, the, the demon view is is just another version of the sin view, but, but with kind of de a demonic layer, <laughs> a demonic veneer or something like that. And people who, who, regard, who tend to have these views or communities that tend to have these views usually attribute this kind of view to the New Testament writings. So they usually point, say, to the exorcisms of Jesus and they tend to say, well, look, here's this de demoniac. Um, and look, they have mental illness and then Jesus cures them through exorcism. So that's what we ought to be doing. With people with mental illness. Now it's, it's kind of not, not a very good way of reading these texts, partly because in fact the, the only exorcism story in the Gospels that seems to be about what we would now call mental illness is, is the, is the Gerasene demoniac. So, so the rest are either pretty silent about what the, what the affliction is, or it seems to be something like epilepsy or muteness and dumbness. So it seems to be that we're, we're kind of reading, that people read mental illness into the gospel texts. And likewise, this sort of myth that um, being demonically afflicted is to do with individual sin. Well, there, there doesn't, this seems to be a sort of assumption that's being read into the text. There doesn't seem to be any indication of this in the gospel exorcism accounts. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil, you know, no, no one claims that that's because he's kind of been sinful or something like that. And in other kind of early parts of the Christian tradition, so St. Anthony is afflicted by demons. His, his uh, biographer, supposedly St. Athanasius, says this is because he's good and, and the devil can't stand the fact that he's so good, so he, he sends a demon to afflict him. So in fact, there doesn't seem to be this link between sin and demonic affliction uh, in the Christian tradition. And in fact, in the text that we'll look at in Sarah in the book of Tobit, Sarah is also afflicted by a demon, but she's portrayed sympathetically. So she's not, not portrayed as particularly sinful or anything like that. So the, the demonic accounts are, are kind of basically sin accounts and they're damaging for all the same reasons as the sin accounts. But I think there might also be other negative consequences. So the thought that you're demonically afflicted is perhaps even possessed is really quite terrifying and um, probably be terrifying to anyone. If you're someone who is susceptible to psychosis, so to hearing things that aren't there, seeing things that aren't there and so on, and that is associated with some severe depression and certainly other forms of mental illness, then it's going to be particularly terrifying. It, it could kind of get caught up with a, a, a psychotic episode in a, in a particularly damaging way. And I think in addition to that, this sort of the, the kind of exorcism culture gives 
kind of false hope of a very quick cure, whereas in fact, a good recovery from, from mental illness is, is nearly always quite a gradual affair, um, unfortunately, but it seems to be important to, to kind of accept that that's the case rather than seek a kind of quick, quick and easy fix. I was reminded of um, The Miracle Maker. Ooh, I haven't come across that. It was a stop-motion animation Easter story. The only reason I was thinking about it is because I showed the kids at Easter. I thought, oh, what would be a good film? But as I watched it, I was really concerned because they portray Mary Magdalene as if she's incredibly mentally ill. And making me realise that they conflate her as having, because it says Jesus had cured Mary of many demons. That's interesting, yeah. But also she's portrayed as being a very sinful woman. Right, yeah. Uh, So yeah, it reminds me that that story, which children watch around Easter, actually confirms that idea of sinfulness and demons and mental health. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yes, and kind of highlights this assumption that if there's going to be, if someone is demonically afflicted, then what is going to be going on is is mental illness. Um, not just the assumption that it's an illness per se, which is is also questionable, but that it will be um, a mental illness and that that's associated with sin. So I think that's that's absolutely right. These things are really um, in the ether. Um, today, but they're not really in the in the Bible texts when you look at them. And so, you also highlight in your book that the church has sought to explain depression in terms of biology, and um, although that might come as a relief to some who have been in these churches that have told them they're really sinful or possessed, uh, why do you think that this is also inadequate? Yeah. So this is the kind of view that mental illness is. Has, has purely biological causes and the treatment should be purely biological. And you get these kind of anti, anti-stigma campaigns um, in the church and also in, in society more generally. So you might be familiar to them, sort of taglines like, it's not a sin, it's a disease, or it's not a choice, it's an illness, are really kind of emphasising that they're getting away from these sin or in society more generally, moralising accounts of um, mental illness and and they're kind of going for a purely biological account to emphasize that, that there is no choice there and that the, the the choice thing which is bound up with the sin thing is is kind of badly conceived and dangerous and i i do think these are extremely well intentioned and i think they must be a huge relief to people who who've experienced the sin views so i'm, I'm kind of not not out to get them or be highly critical of them but I think, I think we can kind of do better than that. Although they're laudable, they emphasise the biological aspects of mental illness at the expense of, of psychological and of social ones. So people sometimes talk about the biomedical model or the bio-bio-bio model and then contrast that to the biopsychosocial model. And I think most doctors, at least in, in theory, if not in practice, now subscribe to the, the biopsychosocial model. I think that's, that's where the body of evidence is. And that's because we know that mental illness is more likely to affect people from certain groups than others. So it's more likely to affect women, it's more likely to affect gay people, it's more likely to affect people from certain ethnic minorities, it's more likely to affect poorer people, people who experience ongoing financial instability, 
people who've experienced torture or rape or who are asylum seekers. So we know that mental illness has social causes. Like there's, there's a big body of evidence of that. And I think purely biological accounts, and that's not to deny the role of the biological um, completely, but purely biological accounts deflect attention away from these social causes. And that's that's a problem in churches since, I mean, in general, because we, we want the right view of what mental illness is and so on. But also it's a pity because the Christian tradition has so much to say about social injustice. And and also, you know, I've talked a lot about the social and, and said that that's important as well as the biological. But I, I think this sort of purely biological view also overlooks psychological aspects um, and treatments of and for depression. So, for example, we know that a combination of therapies such as antidepressants and talk therapy, so psychological therapy, are more effective than just antidepressants on their own. So as well as ignoring the need for for kind of social justice, it also ignores the role of the, the psychological in mental illness and health. Now, I guess there's also a point, a more kind of theological and philosophical point that is probably of interest to, to uh, listeners of, of this podcast, which is that the purely biological review relies on a either a materialistic uh, or else a dualistic view of, of what people are. So a materialistic view is that uh, everything is ultimately reducible to physical stuff, uh, so to neurons going on into your brain or, or chemical imbalances uh, or whatever. Now, most Christians aren't going to be materialists ultimately, because they're going to believe in God and, and God's not material, uh, as usually conceived. I think Mormons think he is, but, but most Christians don't. But the, the, the sort of other option is to go down a dualist route, so to say, well, there's, the, the world is carved up into spiritual stuff or mental stuff on the one hand and, and physical stuff on the other hand. Uh, and maybe God and the angels and the soul and stuff are, are on the spiritual or mental side. And then things like mental illness and also broken legs and so on are, are on the physical side. And, and those two things are, are regarded as, as very kind of split. And the, the human person is really seen as essentially a soul who's being kind of dunked into a body for the, the duration of their life and is then going to be pulled out of it again and, and sent off to heaven and, and the body's kind of unimportant. And that's often attributed to the Christian tradition, that, that kind of dualistic worldview. And I think it is there in some Christian writers. But I think Christian tradition at its best and at its core points away from a dualistic worldview and, and view of what a human person is to a much more holistic account of the human person. So I think we see things, um, I think we see that in things like teachings about the resurrection of the body, for example. So uh, that our ultimate state is, is to be bodily, that we're not just souls who, when we're not being kind of imprisoned by our body, get to go off and float in a spiritual realm. But that the body is really important and uh, the physical world is really important to us. And I think that's important for all sorts of reasons. I mean, ecological reasons, for example, that, that we want to affirm the importance of the world. It's not just a sort of temporary, disposable environment for us to live in when, when we're bodily. So, so I think there are all sorts of reasons to prefer a biopsychosocial view of mental illness uh, and of the human person more generally to a, uh, a purely biological one. And I think some of those are to do with the fact that they they tune in more to what we know about mental illness and, and its causes and the best treatments for it. But also there are, are reasons within the Christian tradition, kind of philosophical and theological reasons, about what 
human beings are that should incline us more to, to kind of a biopsychosocial view than a purely biological one. Thank you. And you, you also, in your book, you talk about the concept of the dark night of the soul. Uh, could you explain to my listeners what this is? Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a good question. So it's a concept and phenomenon, particularly found in Catholic theology, and it takes its name from the writings of a 16th century Carmelite mystic called St. John of the Cross. And at root, I guess you could say it's about painful periods, say, of mental distress in which the soul becomes closer to God. So through, through this kind of purgative or, or painful period, the person is brought closer to God. I think the, the initial phenomenon that's described, it's, it's a long book, long two books, actually, but the initial phenomenon that's described is recognisable to, to any. So a lot of people report that when they first converted to their faith or, or perhaps became more involved in it, they felt this initial period of feeling really joyful, of finding prayer very, very easy. And then suddenly that seems to cease. So that can be followed by perhaps a sense of God's absence or at least the cessation of, of a sense of God's presence and it being far more difficult to pray it's sort of becoming mundane and everyday rather than sort of joyful. That, that gets called spiritual dryness in, in this dark night tradition. So that's the beginning of the dark night of the soul for, for St. John. And he thinks that, and, and, and I wouldn't know about this, but he thinks that far more severe forms of mental distress follow for people as they advance more spiritually. Um, he's thinking of people in the contemplative life here. So sort of fellow Carmelites. So St. John is, is writing for spiritual directors who are trying to advise Carmelite brothers and sisters who are going through this kind of process. And I think one thing that comes across in his writings is that he's really keen that spiritual directors reassure people, the people they care for, that this sense of God's absence and of spiritual dryness and of not being able to pray so well anymore is not anything they've done wrong. And he says over and over again, this is not the result of sin or lack of faith. And in fact, the opposite is the case. It, in fact, it shows that they're, they're progressing spiritually. So I think probably some of the same things happened in the 16th century that happened today. Kind of people had or have this period of spiritual dryness or, or even something more severe than that. And they worry that they've done something wrong to displease God. And then maybe the, the spiritual director actually tells them, yes, you've done something wrong, you've, you're lacking faith or you're sinful or something. And, and St. John is saying, no, that's not the case. In fact, the opposite is the case. This, this happens a lot. And in fact, it shows you're coming closer to God. And St. John's also really keen to help people figure out whether a person is suffering from a dark night of the soul or whether, in fact, they're suffering as a result of melancholy, which is very, very roughly equivalent to our category um, of depression today so he's he's keen that if they're suffering from melancholy they they get the help they need which would be medical help I don't know bloodletting or leeches or something so this you might think well, why is all of this relevant well it kind of comes into the debate about Christianity and depression because it's assumed by some more recent theologians that someone's experience could only either be a dark night or else a mental illness such as depression. So someone who's been kind of a focus for this kind of view is uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, who was canonised fairly recently. And she, uh, no, no one kind of really realised she had this 
very significant period of mental distress throughout most of her later life while she was in Calcutta. But she did, and, and she felt very lonely, very depressed, and she had a strong sense of God's absence, that God didn't love her, even that God didn't exist. And a few... Uh, psychiatrists and theologians kind of said, okay, so Mother Teresa, she was having a dark night, so she wasn't having depression. You know, and other people said, she was depressed, she wasn't having a dark night, she should have got medications. And that's really important because suppose someone, suppose you're someone with a pastoral role in your church and someone comes to see you and says, this is what I'm experiencing. On this kind of view where you can only experience either a dark night of the soul or a mental illness, you would either say to them, it's okay, this is sort of encourage them religiously, give them spiritual guidance and so on, this is, this is a sign that you're coming closer to God. Or you would say, go to the doctor, I think you have a mental illness. And kind of tables are drawn up with symptoms this is what a dark night view looks like. This, on the other hand, is what uh, what depression looks like. But I, I think that kind of either-or view is not quite right. So I think, and I think St. John of the Cross also thinks that someone might be going through a dark night of the soul and depression or melancholy simultaneously. So that's not the idea that they're the same experience, but, but rather that the experience of having a dark night and of ex- seeming to experience God withdrawing from you might trigger... A depressive episode and that seems really important as it means that someone might be offered both medicine and therapy and also this kind of religious encouragement and guidance and just sort of thinking back to the mother Teresa example you know we don't know whether she did have a mental illness but it might be that she could have been spared a lot of suffering if she'd seen a doctor rather than being told that that her uh, suffering was was just a dark night of the soul by her spiritual advisors equally Perhaps you might get someone much less famous than her who's diagnosed with a mental illness, but perhaps they might also benefit from the idea that some of the mental distress they're going through is a period of spiritual growth so that it it has meaning in some sense. And so this links with my next question. Do you think that depression can help Christians grow? Mm, So that's a really difficult question. It's so important not to kind of idealise depression and other forms of suffering but it's also very important to recognize that people do find meaning in it and, and do feel that they've they've grown as a result of it and that belief in that can actually help people when they're experiencing depression to, to to find some some kind of meaning in it so i think depression and other forms of suffering are what i call potentially transformative in other words it's possible for a period of suffering to result in perhaps greater compassion perhaps greater insight. Some people talk about it resulting in a heightened appreciation of of natural beauty, interestingly. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. So it's kind of not automatic. It's not going to happen to everyone. And it shouldn't cause us to think that suffering is actually a good thing um, or it's desirable. So so I guess I'm trying to, to find a middle ground there between saying uh, depression and, and suffering more generally isn't totally meaningless or needn't be totally meaningless but at the same time not wanting to say yeah it's a great thing like suffer as much as you can this is this is really good for you or or, or kind of you're, you're you've got depression you should be growing spiritually as a result of it and, and kind of putting pressure on on people in that way so when I talk about this in my book I talk particularly about a, a psychologist and, and theologian a catholic priest who's called Henri Nerven um, or, or Nowen, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name. And he went through a period 
of depression. And he talks about it as fertile ground for stronger hope and deeper love and, and a greater faith. And you, you kind of see in his, his writings as well as a, a sort of transformation there. He, he, was, uh, he was gay and earlier on in life, before this period, he was pretty homophobic, actually. And after this period, for example, he supported gay couples in monogamous relationships. He had a ministry to people with HIV and AIDS, and he <laughs> was kind of a lot nicer to himself as well. So I think there is some evidence of this sort of sense of greater insight into the self, greater compassion. But again, it's a kind of, this is something some people find, not something that's, that's going to be automatic or, or happen in every case. So before we move on to the Bible study, I always ask my guests the same question and they normally hate me for it. Who is your favourite woman in the Bible? Ah, uh, well, I probably have to go for Mary, the mother of Jesus, really. I think I think the, the Magnificat is a pretty wonderful text and uh, perhaps goes to show why Jesus had such good politics uh, if he was kind of influenced by his mum. Yeah, that is a popular choice. Yeah, <laughs> I can I can imagine. Uh, and so to our Bible study, you have chosen to study Sarah from Tobit. Now, the book of Tobit is a deuterocanonical text and it's found in the Apocrypha for my Anglican listeners. It's a bit of a wild ride. So Tobit goes blind after a bird defecates in his eye. Tobias is half swallowed by a fish and uses the guts of the fish to both cure his father's blindness and chase away Asmodeus, king of the demons. And Raphael, the angel, spends most of the book in complete disguise. I recommend everyone reads it. It's a great book. But amongst all of this, uh, we have a much darker episode involving Sarah, Tobit's niece. So, Tasia, would you introduce us to this episode? Yeah, so that's a brilliant description of it. It, it really is a wild ride, and I, I couldn't have described it better. And if you haven't read it already, then I think, I think uh, you'd really enjoy it. So we're, we're first introduced to Sarah, uh, who's Tobit's niece, and also the love interest of Tobit's son, Tobias. They, they end up getting married. When we hear that she's being reproached by one of her maids because she had been married seven times, but each time this demon, Asmodeus, killed her husband on her wedding night. So that's pretty weird. And this, this maid is giving her a hard time about it. And perhaps not surprisingly, when we meet her, she's described as deeply grieved in spirit. She thinks about hanging herself and she prays to God for death. We then hear that her prayers are heard by God, though not in the way that she asks for. God decides instead to free her from the demon and for her and Tobias to be married. And every indication is that they have a very, they live happily ever after. Later in the book, they are married. And on their wedding night, Tobias burns the fish's liver and heart in an incense burner, just kind of a romantic thing to do in a, in a bridal chamber. And the smell is so appalling that uh, Asmodeus flees to Egypt, where he's bound by the archangel Raphael. So he's kind of can't plague them anymore. In the morning, Sarah's parents prepare themselves to find that Tobias has also been killed by Asmodeus, and um, obviously they'd be very sad, and the family would be um, further kind of shamed by that. But in fact, he's alive and well, and so they celebrate Sarah and Tobias's wedding uh, for several weeks. It's obviously 
kind of a good knees up. Yeah, so so that's basically it. It's a great book, and it always uh, one of the things that I really enjoy are Jewish supernatural tales. And this demon comes up time and time again. And as I was reading Tobit, I'm thinking, where have I where have I read this before? And I realised that actually it's in nearly every uh, supernatural tale from ancient Judaism. That's uh, really interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. So often people in our churches are struggling with their mental health, but we don't we don't leave space for discussions on difficult topics. Texts like this are not in the Sunday lectionary. So how do you think this story might help us to talk more about depression and particularly suicide and suicide ideations? It's mm, a really good question. Thank you. So perhaps it's helpful that it's there uh, in the Bible or at least in the Apocrypha for Anglicans and is therefore in some sense part of the tradition. I, I think there's something important about the inclusion not just of people being happy but also people expressing mental distress and particularly those kinds of mental distress that we're very uncomfortable with, mental illness perhaps, or or certainly suicide and, and suicidal ideations. I think one of the things that's important for me is that the story of Sarah is further evidence against the myth that the idea that mental illness and demonic possession is the result of sin is part of the Christian tradition. So I mentioned earlier that that doesn't seem to be part of the, the exorcism accounts in the gospel or, or Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, or as you pointed out, Mary Magdalene being freed from, from many demons. There isn't that link there. And likewise, in the case of Sarah and Tobit, um, in, in Tobit, Sarah is a sympathetic character rather than one who's blamed for her affliction and her possible mental illness. It's very hard to uh, retrospectively diagnose people but her mental distress anyway is also the result of bad things that have happened to her so the demon is only the cause of of her mental illness in the sense that he's the cause of the bad things he, he hasn't kind of caused her psychological harm directly so again that points to a wider tendency in the Jewish and Christian traditions not to associate the demonic especially with mental illness rather that seems to be something that that modern readers read into biblical texts. I, I, I don't talk about Sarah in Tobit. I, I think she does get a, a bit of a mention in my book, but I don't talk about her in any length. But one thing I do talk about, which is perhaps relevant here, is just the kind of, a lot of people with depression or other mental health problems talk about how helpful the Psalms are for them. Um, and especially the Psalms of Lament, which is in one sense perhaps surprising because you would have thought, you know, there's there's a common response to people being sad or people being depressed or people being mentally distressed to think well we shouldn't expose them to, to more sadness we should cheer them up uh, let's watch a, a happy film or something like that but we also know from experience that often if you're if you're feeling bad actually listening to a sad piece of music or something like that can help you more than, than listening to something happy and and I think similarly in the in the case of the Psalms of Lament there's something important about the, the Psalms being spoken in a liturgical context and therefore part of this kind of sacred space and, and the kind of okayness not to feel happy all the time. And in fact, people can feel stifled if, if liturgies are emotionally prescriptive and only allow for happiness. And, and of course, you can say other things about the, the Psalms of Lament. So, so typically they 
have this sort of period of sadness but end up rather hopeful and so there's this kind of it points to hope at the other end and I think in a, in a similar way the story of, of Sarah and Tobit you know it, it, it shows her sadness and it doesn't blame her for um, being grieved in spirit as it puts it and having that in the canon or in the apocrypha makes it kind of okay to have those kinds of, of thoughts and feelings and emotions and then Again, it it points uh, forward to, to to hope. We don't know what that hope looks like. We don't know whether it's in this life or the next. But but it it points to hope and and God being on our side, I guess. Great. And one of the things that the text makes clear is that God listens to Sarah's prayer and responds immediately. So, do you think Christians take mental health seriously enough? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because. In some ways, I'm not in a good position to answer that because the Christians I hear from are the ones who do take uh, mental illness seriously enough because that's why they contacted me, because I write on this kind of stuff and teach on this kind of stuff and so on. There's so, Certainly people have said that they don't think their church takes mental illness seriously enough. I think, as I mentioned before, there's some evidence that the mental illness of women in particular is downplayed in some churches. And, and perhaps that's a, a more general societal trend to, to downplay the suffering of women and, or, or to moralise it. And I, I also think, as well as the problem of whether churches take mental illness seriously and mental health seriously, there's also the question of how they take it seriously. So telling someone that they're demonically possessed is taking it seriously, but it's not taking it seriously in a, in a helpful way. And, and likewise, telling someone that they're sinful is not uh, taking it seriously in a helpful way. And I think there are other things that aren't so helpful, so that people should just go away and take pills and not look at the wider psychological and social context, that they should be finding it a period of, of spiritual growth. So someone called Barbara Ehrenreich talks about her experience of breast cancer and how people started right-siding it. It's this great term, right-siding, but kind of saying being diagnosed with breast cancer is an amazing opportunity to find yourself or something like that. And um, th- This is apparently, she experienced really quite a lot of this. It's a great book. It's called Smile or Die. And I think you have something like that in, in cases uh, like depression as well. And that's another caution of this potentially transformative account that I, I developed, that we shouldn't right side the experience. We shouldn't say, hey, you're suffering. This is, this is an amazing opportunity for you. Uh, or put pressure on people to, to find good things about it when perhaps it may be that all they want is for someone to listen to them and kind of, kind of be with them and accept that, that they're suffering. So I think all of the, the, those are sort of the unhelpful unhelpful responses. I think there are much more helpful Christian responses. So, for example, emphasising God's solidarity with those who suffer. So, so a lot of these unhelpful responses put blame on people who suffer or, or see them as especially kind of far from God. And we see over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus is on the side of those who suffer. And we see that in the, in the book of Tobit as well. You know, in the case of Sarah, in the case of Tobit himself, who, as you said, like a bird period in his eye and he went blind, but he gets his sight restored at the end. It's a lovely story. Um, so, so that God, God is on the side of those who suffer and hope. You know, that, and, and we don't know if we're kind of talking about hope in this life 
um, of recovery, say, or of transformation, but but certainly hope in 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 the future life. So both of those themes that that Christians could do more to emphasise in the context of of mental health and illness, and those of course are very general themes. They're not specifically mental illness related, but I think part of where churches and Christian theology go wrong is actually when they try to say something specific about mental illness and mental health, provide a specifically Christian etiology or something like that, explanation of it. I think that's that's often where where things go a bit haywire. And so how do you think that we as Christians should respond to this text? Mm. Do, you, do you see it as like a call to action or what should we do? I think at some some basic level, different texts are going to speak to different people at different times. And, and especially one of the wonderful things about a story such as this uh, is that you can kind of put yourself into it and, and you're going to get so many different things out of it, depending on where you are at that time and, and, and so on. I think, I mean, I don't kind of want to push this text too far as a kind of paradigm of, of anything in particular but but perhaps and, and this is something that your questions really brought out this kind of dwelling on the fact that Sarah who's kind of the heroine of the story Tobias is the 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 hero she experiences suicidal ideation and, and she quite seriously thinks about hanging herself she's not kind of reprimanded for this in the text and, and she's not seen as an unsympathetic character so so I think those are things particularly worth worth just dwelling with. Thank you. It, it certainly, so we've studied this story in my women's theology group. Oh, wow. And we pick a different woman each time. And it always fascinates me how women can see themselves in these texts that they never hear in church. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this story in particular uh, is one of the only ones that, seems to seriously deal with mental illness and that's so interesting yeah in a group of women sat around a table reading this story and having their eyes open because they've never read it before never realized Mm. that that story that they might have experienced in their lives is in the bible but up until that point they'd never known it was there yeah it's so important so i'm really grateful to you to for opening that up for us Thank you. Well, yeah, I, I wish I'd been at this Bible study, actually. And I think there's also a reflection of that in that sort of sense of women, women's voices not being heard because women haven't experienced, you know, women haven't heard this text in church. And like that, the only thing that Sarah says in the company of others, I think, is our men, our men, when she responds to, to Tobias on their wedding night, praying that they have a long and happy life and so on. So again it's also a text about women's women's voices not being heard and and so on and and what you just said really really seems to resonate with that so um yeah that that bible study sounds amazing you can come anytime thank you yeah maybe when yeah when we're allowed to meet again that would be good yeah Uh, well thank you so much Tasia and I will put the link to where people can buy your book when this is published the book is called Christianity and Depression and it's SCM Press isn't it that's right it is yeah great um so thank you so much for joining us I've really enjoyed it thank you very much (laughs) 
You have been listening to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Please subscribe and tune in again. Bye.